the gospel of Christ. Do you remember that? This is verse 27 in chapter 1 of Philippians. So last time I spoke to you, we saw the obedience of the incarnate Son of of God as the humble example to follow in our relationship with each other. So this is how to conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel. So Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 2, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And so remember that emptying himself included temporarily giving up the local heavenly relationship with his father, and not coming to earth as a conquering king like many had thought, but, as verse 7 says, in the form of a bondservant, with nothing. So now today we'll see that there is more than Christ's humble obedience or example which, we should, which, we should, which should cause us to live a life worthy of, the, of Christ's gospel. So we'll see that at the end of your life, whether you believe the gospel of Christ or not, you will call him Lord. And you will indeed bend your knee in submission to his reign. So let's read again, starting in verse 2 of Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read again, starting from from verse 2, because I want you to see the argument. Like, think of this as the argument that Paul is building here in the character of Christ. And he's persuading the hearers of this letter, not only in Philippi, but us today even. Right? That the gospel is indeed very worthy of living for. So if you please would stand with me while we read. So this is Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so these are our verses for today from from verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that you've given us. You've shown us who Christ is and what his sacrifice has done for us. Lord, I I pray this morning that we would even be more uh, just in love with who Christ is and what he's done for us. Lord, I ask that you speak uh, to the people here uh, through your word this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Be seated, please. All right, so a simple question to start out. And this is one I've asked many times before. I don't know why my mind always goes here, but... Um, and do you know, the question is, do you know what you're created for? What did, what did God do when he gave you life? What's that purpose? 
So, of course, you, can, you might, might go to all these other places, all these subordinate or peripheral purposes in your life, like when you were made a man or a woman, right, or a boy or girl. And there are roles that God has defined for those traits which he has made. When you're a mother or father, husband or wife, there are purposes that God has designed into a family that reflect, for example, Christ's relationship with the church, husband and wife, or reflect his relationship with each one of us, father and son or father and daughter. But what I'm talking about is the main thing, the big overarching purpose for each one of us, and that is we were created to glorify him. All of creation speaks of this. So in election, in reprobation, in belief or unbelief, obedience or disobedience, all of it culminates in the ultimate purpose for your existence. All of it shows our ultimate need, my ultimate need, which is redemption through Christ Jesus to the glory of God the Father. And so in this, in this passage we see, as I mentioned originally, these last verses complete Paul's explanation of the worth not only of Christ's gospel, but of the person of Christ as well. He's a man, right? The, the worth of the man Christ. So look back all the way uh, into verse 6. And we see, as I've mentioned before, the height from which Christ stooped, being in the form of God and becoming God the man, giving us a humble example of what it means to give up all that you have for others in humiliation or death on a cross. That was Christ's example to us. Then we see, as it were, the other side of the valley. So imagine this valley. Leaving heaven on one side, ascending to heaven on the other, starting in verse 9. And so when you read commentaries on this passage, you'll often hear it described as descending in a valley, heaven to a valley on one side, and ascending into a high heavenly place on the other side. And the valley floor being Christ's time when he walked among us. He felt everything there was to feel as a man, yet he lived a life without sin, keeping and fulfilling the law in full. And he died without any guilt of his own, but for the imputed guilt of his sheep. So my point in saying this in review is that I want you to see the great value of Christ's sacrifice for us. Understanding this example, as Paul says, to have the same mind toward others in the spirit, in the spirit of unity, which is worthy of Christ's gospel. So have this fresh in your mind when we move into verse 9, where we're going to pick up today. So look at verse 9. So let's reread that from verse 9. And we'll see Christ the Son figuratively ascending from the valley floor of the cross and death, and literally ascending and being installed to his rightful place as Lord of heaven and earth at the right hand of the Father. So reading from verse 9 again, Philippians 2. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to, to the glory of God the Father. And so there are a few themes, so I'm going to break this down a little bit, there are a few themes that I want to address from this passage today. And the first being that the exaltation of Christ and what that is. It's not that his eternal place within the Trinity was altered. John 1 is clear about the infinite nature of the Son. So what is the status change that, that happened when he was exalted? 
The second and related theme is the, the, the name bestowed on the Son at this time of exaltation. Since others have also been named Jesus, and Jesus was the name given to him at birth, not at exaltation, there must be a meaning of this slightly deeper or, or a little bit different than just what the plain text might read. Okay? So third, I want to consider the word every in the context of bent knees and confessing tongues in verses 10 and 11. Then finally, I want to roll all of this, as we, as we talked about you know, in, in the beginning, to the primary purpose of God the Father, which is the, to, the, to achieve the highest glorification of himself. Okay, so then this, this statement, the statement for God the Father to achieve the highest glorification of himself, does that, does that statement sound a little bit strange? And it might, if, if you're thinking in human terms, right? If you're thinking in human terms, if someone was trying to achieve the highest glory for himself, they might be called narcissistic or egotistical. And then you would be right. But what you need to realize is that we should think different about God in this way. That is, if you are perfect, nothing more holy, nothing more righteous, nothing more merciful, gracious, and on. What do you have to show or give your creation that is higher in value than yourself? What is due worship besides God? Who is due glory besides God? Nothing and no one. A faulty human does not get this privilege. Glory just means high renown and honor, won by notable achievements. Also remember that God's eternal will to bring glory to himself cannot be thwarted or altered. He achieves and does whatever he wills. He is omnipotent. So God doesn't try, doesn't try in the human sense, to bring glory to himself like you or I would. Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. So this all means logically that everything God wills to do is done without any frustration or failure. And everything he wills to do, he can do nothing but achieve supreme and perfect glory to himself. As he has every right to do as the perfect author and creator. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling the glory of God and who created the heavens. Revelation 4, 11. And these are the elders speaking. John quotes, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. You see that. So with that background and focus, the focus on where we're going and end up in all of this, and that is done for the, for the glory of God, let's begin to look at the themes that are laid out here for us. So the first, as I said, is Christ's exaltation. And exaltation just means to raise to a supreme majesty, to lift high and make known. And so remember what was written in verse 8 of our passage in Philippians 2 from last week. Christ's obedience to death on a cross, which was ordained by the Father, immediately followed by the result in verse 9. Paul says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, which means Christ's exaltation is causally linked to his obedient humiliation. And exaltation by who? Just what the text says, God. To the glory of who? We already have seen, to God the Father. 
So all of this flows into verse 11, this whole passage. To the glory of God the Father alone. And so what does this exaltation consist of? And so the book of Acts has some information for us about that. So first, exaltation consists of Christ's resurrection. And this is the first step, followed by ascension, coronation, which he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and then intercession, which you may have heard that word. So let's look again at Acts chapter 5. And this is Peter and the other apostles speaking to the Jewish council. So chapter 5, Acts, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And so you see, in order to be placed at the right hand of the Father, which was Christ's coronation, or seating on the throne next to the Father, as we said, he first needed to be resurrected, following his obedience to the Father, and ascend to heaven. So Peter uses similar language in Acts 2 to the Jews at Pentecost, or just directly after Pentecost. So Hebrews speaks also of Christ's ascension prior to coronation, or seating on the throne. It also speaks of his intercession, or pleading with the Father on our behalf. The writer of Hebrews here in chapter 4, speaking of the rest we have, the rest we have through our confidence in Christ's unique qualifications as our intercessor. So, right, so the intercession just means Christ is at the right hand of the Father, pleading for us. So let's read Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that's the ascension, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is where we get our confidence in prayer for from. And this is where we say, in Christ's name. Do you understand? Christ is there with the Father. So chapter 7, speaking of Christ, the priest who intercedes for us. He continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And 1 Timothy chapter 2 teaches the same, verse 5. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And so to get a flavor of this intercession that Christ is doing on your behalf, at this very moment, sometime read John chapter 17. I'm just going to read a little bit. And this is known as Christ's high priestly prayer. Right? So this is, basically he's, he's informing his apostles, informing his disciples that he's going he's gonna to leave them. And so just listen to a part of it from verse 13. This is John chapter 17. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that, so he's talking to the Father, right? He's praying. But now I come to you, and, and, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. And even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. So this new role as high priest, who is the sacrifice and the intercessor, is the role which the Father exalted Jesus. Christ is uniquely qualified for all of them because his obedience, because of his obedience to the will of the Father, as a man even knowing, knowing all and sympathizing with our weaknesses, as Hebrews tells us we just read. These words that we read from Paul to Timothy are so important in this regard. Think of this. Right? And this was, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So and it's just kind of an interesting aside. I was kind of like looking at this, studying this a little bit yesterday. Um, if you ever had the time, it's kind of a little bit abstract, but have you thought about the form of God the Son before the incarnation? There are what are known as theophanies. Right? So like an epiphany, kind of same, same word there. Theophanies, and this means appearances of God. And this is occasionally in the Old Testament before the incarnation of Christ. And so explanations of these related to Jesus usually kind of get a little bit speculative. Right? So is Jesus being you know, the angel of the Lord, to quote that, or Michael, some people would, might say, um, depending on what you, how you read scripture. And so even appearances of God to Abraham or Moses, right? For example, Moses only being allowed to see the glory of God from behind. And so in any case, we know that these appearances don't seem to resemble a man most of the time. Jesus, who would, be, who would not be recognized by most as God, even though by seeing him they had seen the Father, right? So just think of this, before, before the incarnate Christ, right, we had these kind of different, if you, if you look at all the appearances of God, you know, there's some that, that might look like Christ or might look in the form of a man, but we, it's not really clear. In any case, people knew they weren't looking at a man. So, you know, after he was incarnate, you had Jesus as a man, and a lot of the times people couldn't even see him as God. Does that make sense? Like you, you almost flipped the, the whole situation around. And so I want to get to the, the final point of exaltation of the Son, or the result of it. So look back at our passage in Philippians 2 again, just for a moment. So part of this exaltation or placing one in a high position is the name given to the Son. And so for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow for those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so as I mentioned already, the name above every name is, is the name given to the Son as the exalted one. And this could actually not be the name of Jesus, right? Since that was given, given to the Son not at the ascension, but at incarnation. In Luke 1, when the angel visits Mary, the name above all names given to Jesus is Lord at that time. Every knee does not merely bow to the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow to the name of Lord. And the name of the Lord is Jesus. Do you understand the, the, how, how this is structured? So Lord just means a person of authority, control or power over others as a master, a chief, or a ruler. This is the name and the title and authority given to Jesus as the sovereign ruler by God the Father. And so Isaiah 45, starting around verse 21, and even prior to that, if we wanted to read all of it, 
that gives us the same picture. Okay, so let's read. It gives you the same picture. And there is no other ruler besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel we justified and will glory. And so where does this phrase, bow the knee, come from? And the saying comes from bowing on one, one knee, or either, or, or two knees even, in, a, in a, like a submission or honor position. So in a way, kind of a joke a little bit, but it came to mind. In a way, you know, tr- it's traditional for men to get down on one knee to propose to a woman for marriage, right? She's it's kind of like pleading with someone, right? What we see in this picture of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus has authority in heaven, on earth, and things under the earth. And the entire intelligent universe is called to worship the Lord. And they will confess willingly and be blessed or unwillingly in judgment. So angels in heaven will worship. Speaking of his vision of the Lord's throne in Revelation 4, this is John. Out from the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like a crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is, who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and they were created. And so the believers will worship and confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, as Romans 4, 9 says. Revelation 5, 13 includes every created thing that will submit to his rule. So from verse 13, And every created thing, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying, To whom sits on the, to who sits on the throne? And to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. You understand this is everything. It's so when the Bible says every knee and every tongue will give glory to God. It really does mean, as I mentioned originally, God receives glory from all who recognize the lordship of Christ, whether they are made for honorable purposes or dishonorable purposes. In Romans 9, Paul clearly writes this as he speaks of the elect and the reprobate making known the riches of his glory through his sovereign election of individuals, as he states in verse 24. I'm going to read from verse 19 here. This is Romans 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? 
On the contrary, who are you, O man? Who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, or the thing created will not say to the creator. Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter not have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? God prepared some for destruction. And he did did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he is, who he also called, not from among Jews only, but from among Gentiles as well. So all things, do you see, all things are for the glory of God. And he does all of this for his glory. So we've seen the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has been given these roles, and the name of the Lord is part of his exaltation by God the Father, or from God the Father. So I want to pause here for a moment and explain something very important about this whole passage. And that is the exaltation of Christ is what the believer will share in when we finally are all glorified and we see him as he is. We commonly talk about being dead and raised with Christ when our soul is regenerated by God. But do you understand that we have a share in this exaltation through the work of Christ as well? So Peter calls us a royal priesthood. That is, we are able to offer up sacrifices to God through Christ, the intercessor. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. And so likewise, the author of Hebrews draws parallels between the believer and the high priest of Israel through the office of Christ, when we're in Christ, you understand? And Christ is the new high priest. So this is talking about Christ replacing the high priest of Israel. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, Brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So our sacrifices are not of keeping the law as they were for the high priest or the people of Israel but of praise to God and good deeds, as Hebrews 13 teaches. So Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And we are joined with Christ in this. So Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to one another, joined to another, to him, joined to him, who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit from God, these good works. We also share in the rule of Christ, 
while yet still being subject to him. Revelation 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him. I'm not sure if this, this, this reference is right. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with the Father on his throne. So the way in which Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, are often explained, and this is correctly so, don't get me wrong, it's that the humiliation and the humble submission of Christ to the Father and the exaltation, right, on the other side of the valley that results is the same that occurs to the believer when they are humbled, they are exalted. And this runs rampant through the New Testament. And of course it's true. In a parable, in, in, in parable accounts in Luke 14 and Luke 18, Jesus says, these are very similar, very similar uh, phrases that Jesus uses, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so for me, the trouble in explaining these verses, these, all of these verses, and stopping there, is that our, in our human frailty, we can often get this idea of trading favors with God. We humble ourselves knowing that exaltation will follow. But this is not true humility to the heart of the believer, and neither is it the way the members of the Trinity operate. They don't operate this way. And Jesus gives us the perfect example in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so the point I'm trying to make is this passage might lead to thoughts of humiliation for the sake of exaltation. But Scripture clearly warns us about works righteousness. And so Paul accounts his interaction with Peter over works righteousness in Galatians chapter 2. And he says, we are Jews by nature. He's talking to Peter. This is Paul talking to Peter. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even if we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Do you see the relationship? Do you see this? And so the final, the final section, the final question I have to ask for you this morning is have you put your faith in Christ alone this morning? And scripture is clear. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Or do you continue to have faith in your works? Or do you even, even if you're a believer, do you sometimes feel or you sometimes wonder, when's the last time I even sinned? Honestly, we need to examine our own hearts and repent of this. It's so easy to fall into this prideful trap. It's a trap. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so finally, 
the way I want you to read this passage, as I said originally, is to have this like-mindedness through Christ that we've been studying. Through your humility with one another and your unity with one another. And this is worthy of the gospel. This kind of behavior and this kind of this thinking is worthy of the gospel. Worthy of Christ's humiliation that he was for all of us on the cross. And worthy of his exaltation now with the Father. And he's interceding on your behalf. So, confess Christ with your knee and with your mouth, all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, we thank you, for the glory that you've displayed in Christ, that you've shown us who you are. Lord, I thank you that he is at your hand now, pleading for all of us, as only he is able, as only the perfect one is able, the perfect sacrifice. Lord, thank you for your sovereign plan of salvation for all of us, through Christ. Lord, I ask that uh, these ideas and um, just your word would, would uh, penetrate our hearts, Lord. May we, may we continue to live, again, with Christ in front of us as our, our example, in unity with, another, with one another. And, um, Lord, as we strive uh, to follow his example. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm going to close today. I was looking for John. Okay. Um, so now... Uh, our time of fellowship is at hand. I think maybe there's one or two people that haven't been here. So we're going to have a fellowship meal in the basement. Uh, there's lots of food for everyone, I think. I'll go last. Um, so anyway, let's pray for our meal today. Father, again, come to your, to your seat of glory through Christ and ask that... Uh, something as simple as the food that you've prepared for us to eat, that you would bless it to the nourishment of our bodies today. We know that it's through grace that we have what we do have. In Christ's name, amen. Let's wait for a little bit, okay? Hello.